So we're continuing with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. You may recall, if you've been following along, this is our 81st lesson. But after we had finished in the eight elements, after we had finished element six, I believe we were somewhere around 72 lessons at that point. So uh, most people not being accustomed to a series of teachings that takes a year and a half, and uh, and will probably be two full years by the time we're done, I decided just to do a review, trying to uh, hit one week on each of the elements. Now we started with an element zero, so... Um, the first eight messages in this um, review were elements zero through six. Unfortunately, this will be the first exception. Last week we did element seven, but we didn't really do it well enough to, to just leave it. So we're going to do a second week on element seven. So far, we haven't had to do a second week on any of the elements. This is the first time in terms of the review that we're doing a second week on the elements. Um, at the end of this is listed where you can get the outlines. If you're interested in them, you just email Stephen Leopold, and his email address is there. And uh, then it shows you where to find them on our podcast. And if you'd like to listen to the longer series, he can send you all the outlines and um, so forth. So, for instance, for uh, Element 5, Jesus Christ, the only mediator, which is on Christology, we spent 30 weeks on that subject. So um, let's uh, get into today's message, which is the pattern of the five first steps into the kingdom of Christ. Now, um, if you'll notice, there's not a lot of review like I normally have, so we're going to kind of get right into just reviewing a little bit of last week. The first thing that I want us to understand is a basic... Uh, if, if you're going to list some of the highest priorities of Grace Christian Fellowship, one of the highest priorities would be to rediscover and restore biblical Christianity. For a number of reasons, even among Bible-practicing and Bible-believing Christians today, uh, reasons that we can't go into that have to do with paradigm shifts and the way of looking at Scripture and stuff that came out of the fundamentalist-modernist controversy, a lot of Christianity today is not very biblical even among people who follow the Bible. So, uh, you know, a big emphasis for us is to study, to search, to examine, to question, and say, hey, is this really how the apostolic communities practiced? Is this really um, how uh, the, the churches of the first few centuries practiced and so forth? Is this really a biblical Christianity? And so um, one concept in trying to understand how to, to find biblical Christianity and how to restore it as instead of just an academic idea that we've discovered it, but that we actually build it into a, a working Christian community. Because the church in the... Uh, Christ built uh, a community of disciples. The, early, the apostles built community of disciples. And the church practiced community for several centuries. Not communalism... Uh, not in the sense that they were shared one economic purse or, or anything like this, but in the sense that they lived a lot more than today, see you on Sunday, and maybe for the real spiritual people, they might also see one another on Wednesday night service or something like that, or Sunday night. But they lived uh, in ways where they loved, served, fellowshiped, worked together on the, for the cause of Christ every day, all the time, is a way of life. And so... Um, one of the concepts to get back to is the idea that there are patterns or models to be found in, in, in the Bible. And there are especially patterns or models to be found for certain subjects, one of which pertains especially to restoring the church in that there's a pattern and a model for the tabernacle or the temple for how the people of God are supposed to carry the presence of God in our midst. And one of the one of the most common things that I've started to run into in the last four or five years that used to not be that common is sincere Christians, uh, it seems, from the fact that they come to church somewhat regularly or 
study the Bible somewhat regularly or seem to be trying to follow the Lord in their way of life, I meet lots and lots of Christians today who have never sensed the presence of God's Holy Spirit. Or if they've sensed the presence of God's Holy Spirit, they've only done it on rare occasions. And of course, Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice. And uh, the whole point of being a Christian is God wants to dwell in commune and fellowship with his people. And you can't fellowship with someone that you're not having communion or dialogue or social intercourse with. So knowing how to cultivate the presence of God both individually and corporately is a super huge issue and pattern. So today, in terms of patterns, we're going to look at uh, the pattern of the first few steps that Christians took when they became Christians. And so in our, my idea today, or my thesis to submit to you, is of, is of the five biblical steps that Christians took in their um, opening days of walking with the Lord, most American Christians have experienced anywhere from zero to three of those. Very few have, uh, have gotten to three of those. Most American Christians have, have either had zero, one, or two of those experiences. Um, very few have had the th- uh, third one, and very few have had a fourth or fifth one. Thank you. So, um, so that's what we're, we're looking at. The idea is, is there a pattern that people went through these steps? Uh, in the, the, the Bible gives us an historical count of the very earliest Christians called the Book of Acts. So we're going to look at the Book of Acts today in terms of is there a pattern of what Christians went through? Now, um, on the first page there, there's uh, quite a bit about what we talked about last week, and we have a lot of teachings available on our podcast. Uh, Almost all of our leaders have been trained to take you through Bible studies on the idea of a pattern and why patterns are important. Those of you who go to the Tuesday Night Right State, you've probably heard this particular subject, I don't know, 20 times or so in the last three years with uh, some of the same verses that are on this page. So um, I'm going to skip the prescribed way because we hit that pretty good, pretty well last week. The pattern of the tabernacle, Exodus 25, God says to Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. That's the goal. We, you know, to have a church without the manifest power and presence of God moving is, a, is the same as having a human body without a spirit. It's dead. So uh, one of the first, the, my first Christian speech was at my little brother's funeral when I was 17 years old, and it was the first time I actually preached in front of an audience. And um, when I walked in to the viewing, uh, the first thing I noticed is there was my brother's body, but he clearly wasn't there. His spirit had gone to be with the Lord. He, uh, he was a very devout and sincere Christian, praying for years that I would become a Christian. <laughs> and God had answered his prayers. So... Um, the whole point is let them construct a tabernacle or a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to, to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And then in verse 40 of the same chapter, see to it that you make them after the pattern for them which is shown to you on the mountain. Now that very verse, Exodus 25, 40, is quoted twice in the New Testament. So there's no way you can say, well, this is just Old Testament idea because the modern dispensationalist way of looking at Scripture kind of throws away the Old Testament, which is something we work very hard here at helping you understand is the continuity of the covenants and why you need to know uh, Christ all through the Old Testament. So Acts 7.44, when uh, Stephen is in his famous confrontation with the Sanhedrin, that if you recall, they didn't like his message very much. They uh, received him with stones. (laughs) They gave him a stone offering afterwards, and he uh, ended up going to be with Jesus. He didn't get to sell many copies, at least not to that audience. (laughs) So, you know, all the churches today, they always have the these things for sale in the back and stuff. And 
Uh, well, that one didn't do very well. But uh, in the middle of that message, he said, Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Hebrews 8.5 also quotes that same verse. Now, when you go through Exodus, after, uh, after that, there is a number of chapters that describe Moses building the tabernacle in every last detail. The furniture, the curtains, the, you know, the golden uh, curtain hanger, <laughs> circles, whatever, I forget, the, all the, t what is it? The rings, yeah, there you go. Um, and all of this is described in detail. And then, uh, then it's all repeated because it kind of says, the first time through it says, he's doing this. And the second time through it says, so he did it. <laughs> and, uh, and then, but once, one of the things you should notice when you get to about, oh, Exodus 33 or so through 39 when it recounts every little step and every little thing that he built exactly according to the pattern, it always says, just as the Lord had commanded him, or just as the Lord had showed him, or just as the Lord had told him. So it makes a point about every paragraph concerning every item that he made it exactly according to the pattern. He didn't have a better idea on anything. He didn't improve the model. He didn't say, oh, God's being a little too intense here. Let's back off of that a little. Uh, it won't sell. <laughs> or any kind of modernistic idea like that. So after he gets done making everything, in around 50 times it says, just as the Lord commanded him, then the, the book ends with this. Exodus 40, 34, and 35. Then... The, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now there's a few more, three or four more verses to get, it ends in verse 40. But um, the point is, is that God has not given it to us. If you If you go back and study really what was called the church growth movement of the 1970s that led to the megachurch movement of the 1980s. Uh, the whole thing was like, how do we bring American modern mega mar marketing ideas to Christianity? And many of the ideas of how to build a bigger church have worked in terms of the numbers of people that come in, but not in terms of the depth of their discipleship or the quality of their marriages or the uh, wisdom they have in raising their children, or the knowledge they have of the whole scripture, or the character of Christ that they display, or uh, any other factor of biblical or historical Christian maturity. In fact, there have been massive losses in that regard, and we all know the statistics that they... that. Depending on who you're studying, they are when the, one of the major points of the Bible is to bring up your children in the knowledge and love and fear of the Lord in such a way that your children will walk with the Lord and that you'll put enough uh, of that in them that your children's children's children will walk with the Lord for several generations. And today, the predictions are that, any, or estimates are, based on statistics and studies and polls that they do, anywhere from 45 to 70% of people growing up in Christian homes are walking away from the faith between the ages of 18 and 22, and, are, and most are of them never come back. Uh, some people claim the divorce rate is as high among professing Christians as it is among worldly people. However, if you uh, filter that through uh, Christians that are active in a church quite regularly, a couple times a week, study their Bible several times a week, and, and show other signs of taking their faith seriously, actually the divorce rate is quite low among those type of Christians. But the average professing Christian in a Bible-believing church today averages attending church between 22 to 25 times a year. And uh, 
and reads their Bible about that many times a year and probably reads about that many chapters of their Bible per year. And we encounter on our student ministries at, at uh, Ponitz and Wright State and, and Cedarville, we encounter Christians who say, I'm great with the Lord, I'm doing well, and so forth, who the idea that they should read a lot of the Bible and, and read the whole Bible has never occurred to them. Nor do they think that's ever been taught in their churches. So the, you know, the I so you know, we could go on and on about this, but my point is there's a pattern to be found in how we're supposed to carry the presence of God. Point three down there, Christ Himself is our calls himself our model in John 13, or our example, which actually could be translated pattern, it's the same Greek word. And John 1 tells us that when the Word became flesh, he tabernacled among us. Most translations say dwelt among us, but the Greek word there is uh, uh, skenao, and uh, skenao means to fix or have one's tabernacle, to abide, to live in, dwell in, dwell in a tabernacle, a booth, or a tent. That's why sometimes the Feast of Tabernacles is called the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booths. Uh, to encamp and to occupy or to reside in. And the reason, if you're, if, you're a study, if you're a student of church architecture at all, the reason uh, churches began to be built of massive stones and had kind of a fortress motif through most of the centuries was because the sanctuary or the tabernacle that Christ is and that the church became um, uh, after Christ's ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is supposed to symbolize protection and communion. Those are two of the primary things that should be happening in the tabernacle of God. People, you know, when I we minister to all kinds of people these days who've grown up in Christian homes that have hurts, uh, unforgivenesses, anger, uh, demonic addictions, uh, fears and on all sorts of problems because the the church is not really doing enough to protect its members you know a church is supposed to be not only a place you get delivered from all that but that you get protected from all that and especially because the presence of god is strong there and you you should learn as a christian how to cultivate the presence of god because it was the fire by night and the cloud by day that protected them from Pharaoh and his armies, right? So one of the greatest protection you can ever have for your Christian life is to walk in the power of God's Holy Spirit all the time, every day. And that's what individual Christians are supposed to be and corporate Christians are supposed to be, a, a, a temple of God in the Spirit, but somebody needs to take you there. We've left the pattern. We have teachings and seminars and so forth. But God's pattern for how to get there, Jesus invited men and women to follow him. In the apostolic community in the time of Christ, uh, we know from Acts 1, 14 and 15, was about 120 people. Even though Jesus regularly ministered to four and 5,000 uh, it says, and of course, most people think they were just counting the men, so the actual number of people in when he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000 was probably 16 to 20,000. Even though he ministered to large crowds, and it makes it very clear that he cast demons out of many, many, many of them, that he healed, in some cases it says everyone, uh, that he spoke and taught everyone, he had a, a pattern of three that he discipled the most intensely, and then nine more that he discipled the most intensely. In fact, Mark 3.14 describes it as that Jesus prayed all night on the mountain, seeking the Lord, and then he named 12 apostles that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. We're all in a hurry to go out and conquer the world today. Everyone has got to go do this ministry, go this way. The first thing he called them to do was be with him. And then if you take that on through to Acts chapter 4, when uh, they observed the confidence of Peter and John, who, weren't, who were raised in the actual far better schools of Galilee, nevertheless uh, not recognized by the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, in their condescending way, say, uh, these are 
uh, plain and uneducated men. So many Christians have assumed that that was true because the Pharisees said so, but it actually wasn't true. But that's another whole point. The disciples were not uneducated men. They were, in the way, the Pharisee snobbery, because it would be like today that, oh, you mean you have a doctorate from Wright State? Well, that's not Harvard. That was kind of the Pharisee's attitude. You can't even read. You didn't go to Harvard, you know. Uh, but uh, So Christians have assumed that Jesus called uneducated men. That is not the case. There's lots of studies that prove that if when you grew up in Galilee, you would have memorized the, the whole five books of Moses by the age of 12, and you would have known many, many hundreds of other portions of the Old Testament by memory by the age of 12. You would have had much higher Bible knowledge by the age of 12 than pastors do today. So they weren't uneducated men. But then it goes on to say, when they observed their boldness and confidence, they observed them as having been with Jesus. And that's the bottom line. Like when I deal with people who are struggling with fears and timidity and so identity and so forth, the presence of God will chase all that stuff out of your life. Because the one who fears is not perfected in love because for perfect love cast out all fear. And the love comes from being filled with the Spirit of God. Well, anyway, enough on kind of reviewing last week and the whole idea of a pattern. So, um, if you turn over the page, and um, let me see if that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, trying to see if I've listed... Um, the scriptures that uh, I have in mind here, but apparently I haven't. But if you want to kind of, you know, uh, do what we encourage people to do, Acts 17.11, after Paul and Barnabas spoke in a city called Berea, uh, it says the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. Thessalonians? Is that right? Uh, it's because they searched the scriptures every day, to see if these things were so, many of them therefore believed. You know, what we kind of have today is a climate where people just go, oh, that can't be right. This, I never heard that before, so, but they don't really do much to study it for themselves. Okay, study these things every day and see if they're so. Study them completely and study them comprehensively. If you can write fast, I'll tell you that in the, in the uh, book of Acts, there's pictures of people getting converted twice in Acts 2. Uh, again, in Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, and in the first 18 verses of Acts 11, um, Acts 16, and Acts 19. So if you want to study the, uh, that to see if patterns that we're going to talk about today are actually there, read all those chapters and look for these patterns. Don't take my word for it. I always say you're your own best doctor, study medicine. You're <laughs> your own best business advisor, study money and how it works. Study everything. Okay, so um, what we want, what I'm submitting to us today is that there's a clearly discernible pattern in the scriptures, Old Testament and New, that uh, when looked at, when you look at the doctrines of soteriology or the doctrines of salvation and the doctrines of conversion, that people took five steps early in their Christian life. In fact, there's no examples in the book of Acts where anyone took longer than 10 days to go through these five steps. Most American Christians have never gone through more than two to three of these five steps after three, five, 10, and even 35 and 50 years of being a Christian. Yet, we're Bible-believing Christians, theoretically. The problem is that you can't be a Bible-believing Christian if you don't study it that thoroughly. And if, you're not, if you don't know how to look for what it's actually saying. All right, so, note one. Understand that the critical difference between average, you know, that is the average experience of Christians today, and what is biblically normative or a biblical pattern, um, you know, understand that there is a critical difference between those two. No matter what you say, uh, if you'll step back and think this through, you'll understand. 
the 90-some percent, a very, very high percentage of Christians are more influenced by the models of Christianity they've seen growing up than by actually the, what the, the scriptural pattern of Christianity is. So if we're in a time where the church is sub-biblical and sub-normative, you can't help but uh, be influenced to think that, that mediocre is normal. And that's what we're up against in our day and age. We're at, in some ways, some of the most unbiblical, complacent, mediocre, and confused Christianity that's ever been on the planet. And uh, I, I remember hearing a very famous TV evangelist, uh, who I won't name, on a very famous TV network, uh, preaching a sermon on how the church is in the best place today that it's ever been. And I thought, Wow, that's a different perspective. Um, I think if, you know, we are, if anything, in the Babylonian captivity of the church right now. That was a famous title of a book by Martin Luther. Uh, and uh, it, the, the title applies to our current situation far more than in Luther's time. So let's see how... Um, the little uh, dot there says the majority of Bible-believing Western Christians have experienced only zero, I should have really said to two of these five, but contemporary average Christian experience is not necessarily normal, normative, or a model or pattern, but it's sub-biblical and sub-normal. You've got to deeply get a hold of that and let it actually influence your everyday study, thinking, so forth. You know, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. When the call went out in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, that, Jer that Jer and Jeremiah had clearly prophesied after the, the first captivity of the northern kingdom was by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The second captivity was by the Babylonians in two waves. Their first part uh, was 597 B.C. and the final blow was 586 B.C. And Jeremiah prophesies that it'll be 70 years until the temple and the walls of Jerusalem are restored. 50 years after that prophecy, God arranges for the Medes to conquer the Persians, and uh, uh, Cyrus and, uh, and uh, uh, what's the other guy's name starts with a D? Darius, uh, you know, begin this process where they allow and even encourage the Jews to go back to their homeland and rebuild. But estimates are only about 3% ever did. That's why actually even in the times of Paul and so forth, just after Pentecost, you see the apostles going throughout the Roman Empire and every city they go to, they first speak in the synagogue because there were Jews who never went back, living all over the Roman Empire. And whenever God moves, it's always going to be a remnant of people who want to be his radical pioneers. And there will be benefit to the ones who don't, but it, but it will only be a small percentage of those who want to obey him. Remember, Jesus appeared to over 500 people, 1 Corinthians 15 says, but there were only 120 in the upper room. That's an incredible fact when you think about it. That means 380 people that Jesus had appeared to were not impressed enough to become his disciple or follower and obey him. Now, how many of those patted themselves on the back? Well, I saw Jesus resurrected. I'm a great Christian and so forth. I don't know. But biblically... Actually, following and obeying has always been the mark of being uh, belonging to Christ. Now, so let's go through these things. Number one is receiving Jesus Christ. Now, we've taught a lot about this. That was um, is um, element six of this series. So, on the review, we did one week on that two messages ago, and when we covered that, we did twenty-three messages on what it means to receive Jesus Christ. Receiving Jesus Christ basically breaks down into two components or two steps. Um, one is the new birth or regeneration. So look for words like made alive, born again, born anew, 
quickened in the King James in words like that when you're reading your Bible, Ephesians 2 and so forth. The second thing is turning from self-determination and self-lordship and turning toward the pursuit of the love of God, obedience to God, the fellowshipping with God, being part of God's people, God's plans, and God's purposes, and that's called conversion. Okay? Now, biblically, these are supposed to happen at once, but for a number of reasons that are beyond today's message, what's increasingly happening is people, the, the vast majority of Christians, have less than a biblically complete conversion. And one of the ways to diagnose that is this whole five steps model. Because most Christians don't know they're supposed to. And it's very much like you could go to a closing, sign the deed, and close, pay for your house, and get the keys, and now you own it, but you never actually go there. <laughs> you know, it's like, I own this house, I have an address. I've never been there, but, you know, I've been told it's a really fine house. I saw the realtor's pictures online. All right, so the second ingredient here, or the second step as you're entering Christ's kingdom is water baptism. Please note that uh, Jesus is the door to the sheepfold, John 10. All who enter must come in and out through him. So receiving Christ is the necessary first step, but the steps 2, 3, 4, and 5 can be done in any order. And and we're going to look at at least one example of people who got step 3 before they got step 2 today. Now, that's kind of important because if you understand what's called... uh, uh, what do they call it? Millennials? Is that the uh, current? You guys are millennials, right? I'm losing my brain today. I, I actually didn't get a chance to go to bed last night, so I am a little fuzzy. But uh, big big day yesterday and tonight. So uh, um, I'm a little fuzzy, so I apologize. So anyhow, one of the major characteristics of millennials, they say they belong to a church for a long time before they actually convert. So, you know, ministries of welcoming of uh, extending fellowship, of loving on people. Uh, Many, many, many people come through the door of the church and even start to attend and go to events and go to the weddings and go to the, you know, the social events and go to some of the meetings, maybe Sunday mornings uh, or whatever. But they actually come to Christ over, over some time. And often there's all sorts of things in their spirit and heart that makes them reluctant to actually become a follower in the obedience, trusting, faith kind of sense uh, when they come. You know, we've I remember one of my dearest friends, uh, when uh, they came here, uh, it was uh, two years before I could get them to read any of our foundational articles or examine what we taught or read the Bible for themselves or anything like that. That's just lots of people in our day and age, are kind of stuck where they have something in their heart towards God, but they have all kind of things binding them so that they're not really willing to kind of like obey God in, in their whole life. And loving on them and continuing to accept them and so forth, it often takes one to two years before they really are granted the full repentance that leads to life. Real conversion means I'm going to follow Jesus' will in everything. I'm not going to have a, a, a category of things I'm actually obeying the Lord in and a category of things I would never obey the Lord in, which is where we're at with most Christians today. And so sometimes you have to love on people, continue to preach uh, as radical as you can, sharp swords, cut hearts, and so forth. They say... Uh, Hard preaching leads to soft hearts, and soft preaching leads to hardened hearts. And uh, we're in a time uh, of complacency in American Christianity where a lot of soft preaching for the last generation or so has left, led to an all-time high of hardened hearts sitting in the pews of churches. And so, um, 
And God wants to not only make your heart tender towards him and grant your repentance, he wants to do so in such a way that you uh, experience and know his presence all the time, every day. And if you, you can only take somebody, someone where you live. Every seed brings forth its own kind as a principle in Genesis 1. So find somebody who lives that way and say, take me to your leader. You know, uh, and, you know, that's why we're always working on multiplying the number of people on the leadership team who live this way so that we have people who can take you there. God desires that for you. Now, on water baptism, I'm not going to read a lot on that. Uh, I talked about why we don't believe in what's called baptismal regeneration last week, so I'm not going to recover that. I would encourage you to listen to John Weiss's messages that are on our podcast under um, teachings on baptism or something, and that, that has teachings on the baptism in the Holy Spirit and teachings on water baptism. And John did a two messages a year apart with the same title, but they did cover quite a bit of material that wasn't completely overlapping. And this is the kind of subject you probably need to hear more than once to really start to get anyway, but they're called the Everlasting Covenant and Water Baptism. I would encourage you to read those. I'm going to figure out how I can... I, we started quite late today because we're having trouble getting set, getting on track here. But um, So I'm going to try to make sure I get through all of this today, so let me hurry. Hebrews 6 talks about how water baptism is one of the foundations of the faith and spirit baptism. Because when it's, it, it's listing six foundations of the Christian faith in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, it's on your sheet about a third of the way down the back page. Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on a maturity, not laying again a foundation of one is repentance from dead works. That's the, the number one foundational thing. That's receiving Christ. That's conversion. Two of... Um, of faith towards God, because, uh, of course, repent and believe. Three, of instructions about washings is the New American Standard. Most translations say baptism. The Greek is baptizo in a plural form, and it's actually, actually plural baptisms. Instructions about baptisms. There's actually four types of baptism in the New Testament. There is the baptism of John, John the Baptist water baptism, which foreshadows Christian water baptism, which is the second type. Uh, and there's baptism in the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says to John and James when they want to sit at his right hand and left, and when their mommy wants them to sit at his right hand and left, mommies are great promoters of their sons. Uh, <laughs> you know, pick my kid, put him in the game. Yeah. But he can't catch. No. <laughs> um, you know, so Jesus said, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Meaning, the, in a, in a, a complete, because baptism means immersion or washing or submersion. And are you going to be, are you willing to go through a complete immersion of your life into suffering? Because that awaits every follower of Christ. Every promise in the book is mine. Every jot, every tittle, every line. That's actually a song. So all those promises about dying with Christ and suffering and God's going to kill you, they're yours. <laughs> Let's rejoice and be glad. So, as Joseph Garlington used to say, Lord, it's no wonder you don't have more friends the, one you, uh, the way you treat the ones you got already. Uh, <laughs> all right, Ephesians 4 talks about there is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, Hebrews 6 tells us there's plural baptisms, and Hebrews 4 tells us there's one baptism. Is this a contradiction in Scripture? Oh my gosh, the Bible has a contradiction. No, you have to learn biblical math. One plus one equals one. I'm always picking on these two because I'm so excited that they're going to get married in Jan on, on June 3rd. And on June 3rd, one plus one is going to be one. <laughs> Go figure that out. And in the Trinity, one plus one plus one is one. Share that with your fifth grade math teacher and you won't pass. But because uh, he, he or she has no insight from God. But uh, 
So, water baptism is one complete baptism by itself. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit is one complete baptism by itself. And that one and that one, water and Holy Spirit baptism, are the one complete baptism that baptizes you covenantally into the, into the people of God in the covenant of God. And that is one baptism, which begins in your process, uh, uh, life, a process to enter through the one baptism, which is the baptism of being fully immersed in Christ's sufferings and drinking the cup that he drank from the Father, which you all of us have awaiting uh, us in progressive doses. So, um, now, that was just one point I wanted to make in um, Acts, I hope you see that. Acts 10, 44 and 40 through 48, when Peter is speaking to Cornelius, you can read it for yourself, when he's speaking to Cornelius and the Gentiles, the, the Holy Spirit falls on them while he's preaching the gospel to them, and they are all baptized in the Holy Spirit and begin to speak with other tongues and magnify God. But they're not water baptized yet, and they didn't even go to an altar call yet. <laughs> They're really messing with modern theology, but uh, they must have never been to the 19th century or the 20th century. I guess they weren't. But uh, the, the truth of the matter is, is they were born again and converted during the message. Guess what? You're not necessarily converted when you raise your hand or go forward. You're converted when God quickens your heart and gives you the desire to please and follow him. You make that public at water baptism, and in modern times, you make that public at an altar call. But um, I went, you know, a, a very uh, wonderful experience that I like to remember is a young lady that uh, Beth and I were having Bible studies with. Where's Beth? She was right there a minute ago. She must have gone out to nurse the baby. But um, this was a girl who was really struggling with depression. She was seeing psychiatrists for it. She was taking. Uh, medications for it and so forth and as I was speaking the gospel to her I could sense her spirit being quickened and the Holy Spirit entered her and regenerated her spirit and granted her a desire to turn her life towards God and she told us two weeks later that these two weeks have been the happiest weeks of my life and I I decided not to pull the trigger on taking the depression medication and so because I'm no longer depressed You'll find that one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. If your life lacks joy, uh, find out why. Be because you're not walking rightly with God if your la life lacks joy. doesn't mean he's mad at you or doesn't love you. He's actually giving you that as a, as a gift to help you get rightly related to him. If you're not flowing in power, love, joy, peace, and patience, and so forth, then... Uh, Humble yourself and get some counsel and read some scripture and, and get and get life right with God. Because God desires that you would walk in the in the presence of the Lord as the fullness of joy, and God wants you to live there. And so you don't need to beat yourself up and question yourself and, and condemn yourself because that helps not. But if you're ex not experiencing joy, say, thank you, Jesus, that I'm not experiencing joy because he won't give it to you on your terms. And believe me, you don't want the things of God on your own terms. Uh, he has this idea that he's the Lord. <laughs> uh, I don't know where he got that idea. But, uh, and, it, and it only works when you go do it his way. And, all, and the whole does, our whole entire fallen nation want, nature wants to do it our way. Now, I'm way past the time, so, but I'm going to just keep going. We're going to be a little late today. Number three is baptizing the Holy Spirit. I can't read all the scriptures on it that I have there. We have um, four podcasts under teachings about baptism. We have a leadership team of about 13 or so people who know how to walk you through those four Bible studies. We have some introductory books on that. And if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, pursue being baptized in the Holy Spirit if you're sure that you have really received Christ and are converted. You might have to go back to step one and re-examine 
how much of the gospel you really have received. But there's nobody in the New Testament that, that got baptized in the Spirit longer than 10 days after they were converted. So the problem, you know, like always on your te- the problem is not in your set. The problem is in your set. The problem is within us. But God loves you. He died for you when you had way more problems and you were an enemy of God. And he wants to, it's clearly wants to freely give you all things. And being baptized in the Holy Spirit is one of the greatest freely give you all things, things that he wants to give you. That's what Luke 11, uh, 9 through 13 tell us. Read Luke 11, 11, 13, 13. Just, and he, your heavenly father wants to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism in the Spirit is often called the promise of the Father. The phrase baptized in the Spirit is seven times in the New Testament. The phrase promise or promises of the Father is over 20 times in the New Testament. And Acts 1, 3, 4, and 5 make it clear that those are exactly the same thing. The ultimate promise of God is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he has that for all his children. There's no special category of children. Now, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 talks about how men will be this and that. In the last days started with Pentecost, but we are living, people go, do you believe we're living in the last days? Yes, I do. They started, it started in Acts 2. And, uh, but this particular version of the last days, I'd say 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4 is a pretty good description of our culture right now. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient parents, ungrateful, unholy. That's, man, he's got my, our address. Irreconcilable, the, our divorce rate, just because we're irreconcilable, right? So, and on and on. So, malicious gossips, that's the favorite Christian sin of our day. Just want to tell you about this so we can pray about it. Did you see Sister Bertha? You know, arrogant and so forth. But it says that these people are not pagans. These are people that hold to a form of godliness. They go to church. And if, you know, they would be aghast at, you know, certain things and so forth. But, supposedly. uh, But it says they hold to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. That's the power of the cross and regeneration in the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it actually goes so far as to tell us to avoid such people. Wow. That has pretty big implications. If we were to actually avoid all people who hold the forms of godliness and call themselves Christians, but, uh, but deny the power of it, of the Lord, that would be a whole different kind of fellowship, wouldn't it? Of course, we're all Bible believers. So... Uh, just, you know, now one of the reasons this is so important, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. There's, um, it's no secret, it's no great mystery why what's called the worldwide worship movement uh, followed after the charismatic movement of the late of 1959 to 1981, the worldwide prayer movement followed, and the birth of community-style churches followed. Because one of the things the Holy Spirit will do for you, both in your relationship with God and one another, is he will never settle for impersonal, theoretical, uh, abstract ways of walking with God. He wants to be intimate with God, and he deep calls the deep, and the Holy Spirit in your spirit will cause you to journey into the heart of God. Everyone, I, I really hope you're hearing that. Um, and the Holy Spirit in your spirit will never be happy with irreconciled situations in churches that, that have only see each other once a week and have no depth of fellowship and no accountability and no mutual love and service and so forth. The reason we live near each other and in houses and practical ways as much as we can is because fellowship is a huge priority of God. In God, you know, in the early church, they took their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people, and ate their meals from house to house. They were in each other's homes all the time. And despite the fact that I live in a total dump 
Uh, that's a little embarrassing. I have people over all the time anyway. <laughs> Why not? Everyone knows my house is a mess anyway. So number four, I didn't uh, go through and I forgot to make them bold. So there's no, I'm not trying to de-emphasize number four or five. Deliverance and healings. I almost attempted to spend another week on this. Probably will. Um, most Christians today don't understand theologically why a Christian can have a demon and why only a Christian has the right to be delivered from a demon. And only a Christian has the grace and power to keep demons out. The wrong teaching that's out there that leads to the, is that, well, a Christian can't have a demon because how can the Holy Spirit and uh, demons live in the same body? Well, how can your sin nature, which is much more wicked than demons, <laughs> live in the same body as your regenerated spirit and the Holy Spirit? You really haven't understood your sin nature if you think your sin nature is a lot more righteous than demons. <laughs> Mine isn't. But uh, um, so, you know, we'll, we'll get into that next week. Um, Christians do need deliverance. Christians should practice deliverance. If you've never cast demons out of people or had demons cast out of you, then if you read the Gospels and Acts, you must start to think biblically and say, I don't care if it scares me a little. The truth of the matter is, if that's not part of your repertoire, then you're living in a sub-biblical Christianity that's not very, not very realistic. Jesus cast demons out of many, many people. The scriptures are clear. There's seven dramatic casting out of demons in Matthew, Mark, Luke, but there's many places where it says multitudes came in and he, and he cast demons out of many in multitudes, hundreds. And he was in a much more godly culture than we're in. So despite modern psychology and all of our unbelieving paradigms of natural mindedness in our culture, if you're not encountering God in those kind of ways, then pursue a really a real biblical Christianity. Because, you know, I, my mom taught me how to cast demons out when I was a Christian one month. And a lot of them got cast out of me <laughs> at that time as I was coming out of the drug culture and all that. So, um, lastly, entering a New Testament lifestyle. We're way past the time, so we're not even going to get into that. But uh, I'll just submit that most of us uh, live far below a biblical or New Testament lifestyle. And we'll look at Numbers 4 and 5 again. We'll do one more week on previewing Element 7 probably next week. Uh, or I don't know if I'll move on to Element 8 next week or not. Because we, we will then go through and teach all five of these in more detail. So we are... Uh, already 12 minutes behind schedule. And please, if we can, let's try to get here a little earlier because honestly, about only one-third of the people who are in the pews right now were here when we started at 9.35. And that it would help us all to stay more on schedule uh, if we could get here just a little earlier and get seated. Thanks. Amen. <laughs>